When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Social Security is one of the most complex and confusing federal programs. With over 2,700 rules, it's no wonder that we're confused about when and how to start collecting and who to turn to for help. Welcome to Social Security Answers from the Experts, hosted by Martha Shedden. In this podcast series, Martha meets with professionals to provide you with the answers to questions about this most important financial decision. And now, here's your host, President and co-founder of the National Association of Registered Social Security Analysts, Martha Shedden. Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Martha Shedden, and today I have the pleasure and honor of welcoming Nancy Altman to the podcast. Nancy has been an advocate, advisor, instructor, author, thought leader, and all-around front row participant on Social Security and private pensions for nearly 50 years. In the mid-1980s, she was on the organizing committee and the first board of directors of the National Academy of Social Insurance and received the Robert M. Ball Award from the Academy in 2018, which is presented to an individual who has made significant contributions to strengthening Social Security, Social Insurance for Americans. Nancy's currently president of Social Security Works, chair of the Strengthened Social Security Coalition, and is serving a six-year term on the Social Security Advisory Board, an independent bipartisan federal agency that advises the president, Congress, and the commissioner of Social Security. With an AB degree from Harvard and a JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Nancy has authored numerous books published op-eds in dozens of newspapers, and shared her social security expertise on numerous television and radio shows. So welcome to the show, Nancy. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Um, With this podcast, as you know, we aim to help financial professionals and workers understand Social Security. Your background on this topic is so extensive, and so I want want to just make doubly sure that our listeners appreciate what you're sharing here with us today. Um, right out of college and law school, you were a tax lawyer for several years, handling a variety of private pension matters, and then you became a legislative assistant to Senator John Danforth advising him on social security matters. How did you become interested in social insurance topics? Is this, was it something about how you were raised? Was it your experience in the Bachelor of Arts Studies law school? What led you down this path? Well, in some ways, I I feel like it was meant to be because I started working in tax law in 1974 when the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 was enacted. That was a wide-ranging legislation regulating private pensions, which before then had had many problems with insecurity. Uh, And every pension plan in the country 
had to um, be modified. As a consequence, tax lawyers or labor law lawyers, it was different in different law firms, immediately were put to work on pensions. So that really was the pension side. Then I decided I really was interested in the public sector, went to work um, for a, a new senator from Missouri, John Danforth, who was on the finance committee, just as the Social Security Amendments of 1977 were um, working their way through Congress. So I got at a very start of my career, private pensions and Social Security. Then I had the good fortune to be Alan Greenspan's assistant on the bipartisan commission that led to the Social Security Amendments of 1983 and was really privileged to work closely with three men who who started Social Security, started working on Social Security in the 1930s, two of them in 1934. Social Security was enacted in 1935, but they were hired to be part of the New Deal group that put together the amendments. The third was the man you mentioned, Bob Ball, who started in the field office in 1939. As a consequence, as you say, I've had a first row seat. And I like to say to people that as they listen to me, there's a continuous thread going back to Franklin Roosevelt and Francis Perkins, Arthur Altmaier, who was the first commissioner, because the three men, Bob Ball, Bob Myers, longest serving actuary, Wilbur Cohen, who rose to be Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, now HHS, started as young men in the 1930s, and they were privileged to work with Roosevelt and Perkins and the others. And then I, had, at the start of my career, was privileged to work with them. And now I'm very fortunate to be working with lots of, of people, younger people, and um, who are now committed to carrying on the legacy of Social Security. You've definitely had a front row seat for the whole time, especially with that legacy, um, with everyone that's mentored you. Um, my next question was regarding your your position as assistant to Alan Greenspan um, when he was chairman for the bipartisan commission that developed the 1983 Social Security Amendments. And I'm such a Social Security geek. I'm just curious uh, what that was like. Those were major changes to the Social Security program. What can you share with our listeners about the work involved and the passage of those amendments? Well, it, it's again, it's fascinating that, and again, these three men that I just mentioned were um, instrumental parts of it. The uh, commission really was started out um, in some ways as a rising out of the ashes of the failure. The uh, Everyone knew um, because of the economy at the time, there was what was called at that time stagflation with very high inflation and high unemployment and those kinds of conditions. And just a few years before social security had been um, automatically indexed before that Congress acted every two years or so to raise benefits. And they enacted it in such a way that if the economy as had been historical had been going on, everything would have been fine. But this particular high unemployment, high inflation, because of the way they had structured the automatic indexing, it really was over-indexing. So it became very clear right away that Social Security was projecting a shortfall. Congress knew it. President Ford at the time proposed um, a plan, but it was 1976. So people, you know, it was election year. Congress didn't act on it. 1977, 
uh, President Carter proposed that that's when I started working on the Hill. That was enacted, but they didn't, they thought they had put it into um, balance, but actually inflation and unemployment got worse. So just a few years, they said, okay, we have a problem. Congress was working on it, but at that point, the Reagan administration had just come in and they really overplayed their hand. David Stockman, who was OMB director, was really hostile to the program. And he proposed, used it as an excuse to propose very deep cuts to people who are just about to retire, something you really can't. Isn't, isn't Don't do that. No. <laughs> and the phones were ringing off the hook. And as a compromise, the commission was established. I'm giving you a little bit of a long answer, but I think this is, is really No, important. it's fascinating to me because they accomplished so much and it, relatively and, quickly, it seems. Yes, very quickly. And the, at the very least, it was to get them through the 1982 election because there was so much um, concern about it. But it was set up so that it was 15 members, three appointed by the president, three by the Senate, which was controlled by the Republicans, but it was three Republicans, two Democrats, and three, and five, I'm sorry, five, five, and then five by the um, House of Representatives. The people who were um, put on it were, it was um, the chairman of the um, Finance Committee and Ways and Means Committee and the ranking members, and also the head of the AFL-CIO business um, representatives, Claude Pepper, who was then seen as Mr. Um, he was there for fighting for the seniors from a representative from Florida. It was such a wide range of views that nobody thought it would succeed. But if it did succeed, no one was going to stop it because it was, all, I consider it like a conference committee before the, as it's working its way through Congress. It had all the interest groups. And as I said, Bob Ball was a member. Bob Myers was the executive director and Wilbur Cohen was head of an outside activist group trying to make sure the changes were done well. And they, um, it was, and I can go into more detail if you want, but it was a very, on the one hand, it was what it's, what I often say about people and their, their own qualities. Sometimes your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness or your biggest weakness is also your biggest strength. And in this case, the, the range of views was weakness, it was hard to reach agreement, but once the decision, they decided they were gonna reach agreement and they were willing to compromise, it really was something that has lasted until now. For 50 years. And it's, right. uh, they had that buy-in then from all these different representative voices that um, we're not seeing that today. Well, and that's really one of the big differences between then and now that there've been a number of, of groups that they claim are modeled after the Greenspan Commission, you know, the Bull Simpson Commission and others, but those tended to be much narrower group of people, not representing people on the outside, no one really knowing what was going on and with a real fixed agenda. This one was real honest debate. There were those who would like, wanted to see the program expanded. There were those who um, wanted to cut back on it and they were willing to talk and they were, Bob Ball again, who we spoke, mentioned a few times, was really a master. He was the most amazing negotiator I've ever seen. He always knew, he was always thinking about what the other side wanted, the other side needed. 
and what he could concede that wouldn't give, um, wouldn't uh, violate his, his basic principles. He was very right. principled. I, you know, used to joke that he, he was more prepared than anyone. He could make the other side's arguments better than they could. And he, <laughs> he, he really understood it all. And I think his view was that he wanted to make sure that this um, basic structure, because there was a lot of talk back then about privatization and so forth. He yeah. wanted to make sure that the basic structure, which has stood the test of time, would remain. And it did. And he was willing to have some. They delayed the cost of living adjustment. They raised the retirement age. So there were concessions that were made, although the raising the retirement age was actually, the commission, that was the one thing the commission did not agree on. The um, progressives wanted um, a rate increase in the social security contribution rate. The conservatives wanted a benefit cut in the form of increasing the retirement age. And the report left that to Congress and there was a vote in Congress, but it was done in the open with a vote on the floor of the House and the Senate. Anyone could have amended it, but all everyone was agreed that something had to be done. And this really was the best they could get. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that it stood the test of all this time and that we're just now using up the surplus, which most people don't even understand that. But um, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed for the next decade or so. Oh, it will, you know, and I, one thing that I say when young people, because, you know, I sort of um, joke when I'm speaking to young people, but it's really not a joke. When I was in the early 1980s, when I was just starting my career and, and working on the Social Security Commission, I was told I would not see my benefits. The program was going bankrupt. And right. I laughed that 50 years later, um, it's now my children and grandchildren who won't see. The, 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 used to be the greedy geezers who wouldn't, I, I was the victim. And now I've become the victimizer. I'm a social security age and they're not gonna see their benefits. The reality is that social security is current funded, which means that as long yeah. as we have a workforce, people will get benefits. And I don't like to tell young people that, although we think of it as a retirement program, and that's an extremely important part, it provides disability insurance, often the only disability insurance workers have, and life insurance, very valuable life insurance. So young people um, are, who are contributing you know, if goodness, I hope, you know, God forbid, walked out and had a terrible accident and could no longer work, they would be getting disability benefits. So it's a very valuable, um, there's something they're getting right now. It's not just waiting 40 years. Yes. And then there's the cases we see where um, a father who's just been diagnosed with a terminal disease and he and he's in his 50s as well as his wife and two young children and people don't realize what impact social security survivor benefits are going to have on that family um, for many years so um i'm preaching that's, to the choir though that's <laughs> but that's exactly right and it's a benefit you know it came in in 1939 but it's a benefit most people don't realize they have until they, um, until disaster strikes, yeah. Their own lives. I mean, the 9 11, um, those oh. the, the children received, right, right, received benefits for that. It's, it's there. And when you speak to most, you know, a reasonably large group of people, usually someone has gotten survivor benefits, they're members of Congress who got survivors' benefits as children. So 
It's one of those things, and it's what it's supposed to provide. It's yeah. supposed to provide the sense of security, be there in the background, not something you're sitting there fretting about. But if tragedy happens, or if you have the good fortune to live to 110, because yes. you can't have social security, it's there for you. Yeah, yeah. You've written quite a few books, and the one you um, co-authored with Eric Kingston, Why Social Security Isn't Going Broke, I don't like that term, and how expanding it will help us all. You published that in 2015. So you offer a powerful antidote for the three-decade-long billionaire-funded campaign to make us believe that this vital institution is designed to collapse. Can you talk to us about this? Well, who wants us to believe that Social Security will collapse and thank why? You, thank you so much for asking about that. And, um, and we've updated the book, Social Security Works. It's now, we have a new uh, edition that's come out, Social Security Works for Everyone. And it, it you know, I don't want to sound, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, except it's, it's, uh, it's not a theory, it's not... Uh, all, Social Security has extremely widespread support. It always has because it, extremely. It, it fills a basic need. You know, sometimes people talk about the need to modernize Social Security, but it's thoroughly moderate. The concept is that as long as you're dependent on wages for food, shelter, clothing, and most of us are, virtually everyone is, then you need insurance against the loss of those wages. And that's what Social Security is. You could become unemployed we don't think of unemployment insurance as Social Security, but it was part of the Social Security Act of 1935. You can become, uh, as we were just talking about, so seriously disabled that you no longer can work. You can die leaving um, young children dependent on your earnings. And you could be um, have the good fortune to live to old age and you um, have earned the right to retire. So that's what Social Security provides. And most people recognize it support it, understand um, what a good deal it is, how efficient it is, and so forth. But there've always been some, starting from the very beginning, who either, you know, believe that small, the government should be, you know, as, as um, the activist Grover Norquist said, shrunk to the si a size where it can be dragged in the bathtub, you know, where there are, this isn't an appropriate role of government, or simply are extremely wealthy, you know, on Wall Street, social security gets zero, uh, People on Wall Street, no broker's fees, no uh, money to be made, even though it's trillions of dollars going through Social Security every year. So there have always, from the beginning, been those who called it socialism, who opposed it. They argued that in the 1930s, it was a very colorful debate. It was part of the 1936, the uh, um, presidential election where Alf Landon, the Republican candidate, called it a hoax on the working man. In the 1950s, um, there were Goldwater conservatives who were opposed. President Eisenhower, and this is a fun thing to do for those watching and listening. There, you can find it online. President Eisenhower wrote a letter to his brother, which has now become public, that he said something about the um, those who want to do, do away with Social Security are a few millionaires their number is negligent and they are stupid, is what he said. Oh, oh, oh I but haven't the, heard of that. Oh, yes. It okay. Just, if I, I'll, I'll send you a link and you can- I uh, want, I want that, yeah. But they, 
they're not, but he was, I don't want to say they were stupid, but their, their number was yeah. negligent. I mean, negligible. Yeah. But they, um, because of their wealth, they have oversized influence yeah. and access. And in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, you know, I give them credit. They were straightforward in their opposition. They said, it's socialism, it's this, it's that, it's not appropriate, it competes with private sector, so forth. And they always lost, but they, you know, they stood up for what they believed in, which is what our democracy is about. Mm -hmm. Starting in the mid-70s, the conversation shifted. Uh, either all those people vanished, which I don't believe, or they realized that their tactic was not working. So you had the Koch brothers, whose father had been a, a Texas um, newspaper owner who had railed against the New Deal, and they opposed Social Security. You had a very wealthy um, hedge fund manager named Pete Peterson, who was had been um, Secretary of Commerce under Richard Nixon. And they started putting out funding organizations and writing uh, essays themselves saying, we love Social Security, but it's not going to be there for you. It's not affordable. We're, and they basically, today, in the past, you could know who was for Social Security and who was not, because you say, I'm for Social Security, I'm against it. Now, everyone says they love it. So you have to ask more questions, because they will, it's a little bit like the old Vietnam, you know, we had to destroy the village to save it. It's the, oh. you can tell who opposes social security because no matter what, I always call it a um, solution in search of a problem that the, uh, the solution is cut social security or, or privatize it. And the problem shifts. It's unfair to African-Americans because they don't live as long as it's unfair to young people because they could do, but you know, there's always, it's yeah. a shifting reason of who's um, who's the victim, but the right. solution is the same. But it has been, is not succeeded in actually cutting benefits, but it has succeeded in taking away the intangible benefit of security, because the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe you're going to get benefits. Right. And I like that you just said the intangible benefit of security. You don't have that security. And That's I felt right. that way until I was introduced to the topic uh, over a decade ago, I was not even counting it as part of my retirement. And um, boy, did I find out I was wrong. But it's, it's really hard to overcome that inertia that's in the media about it's going to go broke, and it's not going to be there for you. So that's another book you wrote, Nancy, that I wanted. To, I just love the title of this one. In 18, The Truth About Social Security, The Founder's Words, Refute Revisionist History, and Zombie Lies and Common Misunderstandings. That's great. So, <laughs> so many people think that Social Security is somehow the cause of the federal deficit. What are the most prevalent zombie lies and common misunderstandings about social security. Well, we've been talking about one, which is it's going broke. Right. It's not going broke. It has a $2.9 trillion surplus. It is being drawn down and projections are that Congress has to provide, uh, has to provide more revenue to make sure benefits will keep being paid. But there's people have the idea that somehow you fall off a cliff, you know, that, yeah. that what, there are no reserves, you get nothing. And even the, um, I mean, the, the projections are that even if Congress were to do nothing whatsoever, which is 
unimaginable. Unimaginable. Yeah. People would still get 75 cents on the dollar. Now, that's not good enough. They should be getting 100% on the dollar. And in fact, I do have some good news, which is that although you're right, the media is really locked into this narrative that, yeah. uh, and into the war of seniors against young people and so forth, you know, these, these bait click kind of um, headlines. But the Democrats have now recognized that the nation is facing not a social security crisis, but a retirement income security crisis, that it's the private pension, the private employer side, where uh, traditional pensions are disappearing, 401ks are not being shown to be adequate enough. And what the Democrats have been proposing, including President Biden, is to expand benefits and require the wealthiest to pay more to Social Security. It's not getting much um, reporting, but it is a, a kind of quiet movement where there's legislation that's been introduced in the House of Representatives with, if you can believe it, 200 co-sponsors. You only need 218 votes to pass it, but they already have 200. This is, you're talking about Congressman Larson's yes. 2100? Yeah, yeah. It's Social Security 2100, a sacred yeah. trust. Uh, that has, he's had hearings, um, which I testified at, and he's uh, trying to get a markup in the Ways and Means Committee, and we shall see. So that's one really big misunderstanding. That Another is that somehow we can no longer afford Social Security. It's, you know, we're so much wealthier now as a nation than we were in 1935 in the midst of the Depression, or in 1956 when disability insurance was enacted, and 1972 when the program was automatically adjusted. We, wealth is not spread fairly. We've got income and wealth inequality, uh, which is why I think it makes sense to require the wealthiest to contribute more to Social Security. But there's no question we're wealthier now than we've ever been in our history. And in fact, we're the wealthiest nation in the world. So there's no question we can afford Social Security. It's really a question of values and priorities. And Poll after poll after poll shows the American people, as polarized as we are, are united about Social Security. It's surprising that it's across gender, political parties, ages. And it really, when you mentioned the whole retirement planning financial situation, it saves us from ourselves because the defined benefit pension plans are disappearing. And we are not doing a good job of contributing to 401ks and 403bs and IRAs. And um, we have to be forced to do that. Not everyone has the ability that, you know, to earn enough money needed for those retirement years, which are 20, 30 years, possibly. So there's so many, I mean, I I talk about, um, it's a, a bit of a subtle difference, but that really what you need for retirement, certainly at its base, is insurance, insurance against loss of wages. Not savings are always important. It's, you know, my um, parents always said that the first check you should write from your wages is to your savings account, because if you just try to save what's left over, you'll never have anything left over. Um, But it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do, especially with stagnating wages and student debt and all the kinds of expenses that people have. But the idea of insurance is, that we pool our, you know, if, if it's savings, if it's a 401k, all the risk is, is focused on the individual. Exactly. You might reach retirement age when there's a downturn in the, um, in the economy. I mean, all kinds of things. 
But insurance, especially one that's broad-based like Social Security, where everyone, we're pulling our risks across the nation. That way, you know, it, when people say, how much should I save for retirement? I sometimes jokingly say to young people, well, how long do you plan to live? Because it really, you know, if you're only going to live to 60, you don't need to save for retirement. If you're going to live to 110, you need to live a whole lot. It's something we don't know for individuals, but actuaries know for us very accurately as a group. That's why we have insurance where some people die young, some people live extremely long, and we pool all of that. There are about 40 actuaries working at the Social Security Administration that are looking at fertility rates, mortality rates, as well as um, wage rates, immigration, all the kinds of things. And so the most recent book you already mentioned that you co-authored, the Social Security Works for Everyone, Protecting and Expanding the Insurance Americans Love and Count On. There's such, we talked about how there's so much uh, widespread approval of Social Security. So why is it so darn hard right now for lawmakers to pass legislation that would extend the longevity? I, I feel like, wouldn't they want to be the ones that took credit for that and accomplished that? It's such a good question. My assessment of it is that they are listening to the donor classes that we talked about. There is a small group of ideologues who either don't like government or they're fine with government, but they want a share of the profits. They want to make money. They don't want to have to contribute. And the American people, poll after poll after poll, the thing about Social Security is that polling started back in the 1930s. Every candidate polls about Social Security. Our organization does, AARP does, Heritage Foundation, conservative organizations, liberal, or everybody polls about this issue. And the interesting thing is the polls always come out the same way, that the younger you are, the less likely you are to think you're going to get benefits. But if you ask the follow-up question, well, do you want it to be there? Everyone says yes, because they know they're going to, to need it. They do not want to see the benefits cut. They know they're modest. They're even willing to pay more if uh, it's necessary, yes, although, they, they um, although they, of course, would rather wealthier people pay more, which I think is, is right. And they would like to see it expanded. They know it's more important than ever. What the elites in Washington have talked about for decades now is cutting it. And of course, they're going to lose because the American people, even the most conservative um, constituents, don't want that to happen. So they've tried to go behind closed doors. They've tried to, you know, as they talk about it, hold hands and jump and all of that. And there are people like me and my colleagues who are watching and getting the word out when they're trying to do that and saying, no, we don't want this to pass. As they say, the Democrats have now realized that really what they should, that as important as making sure Social Security can pay full benefits is it's a means to an end. The end is to provide basic economic security. And the question is how much do we want to provide as a, on a collective basis, this economic security? And I think most Americans and the Democratic Party has recognized that we need to increase the benefits and fully fund them. So that's working its way through. And I think there will be legislation sometime in the next few years. I do too. And I am so um, excited to watch what happens with this particular bill. Um, 
Yeah, you know, you mentioned it's insurance, and a lot of people don't even understand that. There's that old comic strip I used to read, Zitz, the comic, when my kids were that age, and and he gets his first job, and he says, who is FICA, and why is he taking all this money? And, you know, it's an insurance contribution act. Yes, and thank you so much. I think that's so important to really Stop because, yeah, it's FICA. FICA, who's this FICA? But the um, Federal Insurance Contributions Act. And that was enacted in the 1930s when, you know, today we're used to no child left behind or, you know, these, um, the Patriot Act or these, the CARES Act, you know, these acronyms and these names that are, that are Madison Avenue. Back then, when they enacted tax bills, they called them revenue acts. When they, uh, gave protection to workers to collectively bargain. They called it the National Labor Relations Act, not a fancy title. You know, when they had minimum wage, maximum hours, the Fair Standards Labor Act. So when they called it the Federal Insurance Contributions Act, that's because that's what they were doing. These were our insurance contributions or premiums. And that's another thing too, the, the wording contributions. And I'm constantly struggling against that because um, the taxation of Social Security income is a really big topic. And in fact, I'm doing a webinar for Bob Powell on that next week. But um, that people d- are saying, well, how can they tax our income? We already paid taxes. <laughs> Those weren't taxes. You were paying contributions. And yeah, that's, an- that's another whole topic. But Well, and if you want, I'll give you a, a sentence or two, because that actually was part of the Social Security Amendments of 1983. It was the first one, wasn't it, that that they started taxing? That's right, because in 1935, um, you know, there was some taxation, and and the Roosevelt to fund the New Deal, and then World War II started increasing income taxes, and the Treasury Department had to decide what to do um, with income from Social Security. And it was just a regulatory decision to say, well, it's money from the government, so it makes no sense to, you know, it's going out, why bring it back in? I I think that was the wrong judgment back then. But a lot of people since then, a lot of experts said, no, I mean, we tax uh, private retirement income as taxable income, and Social Security should be taxed the same way. Social Security, as you know, is extremely conservatively financed, where employees pay with after-tax dollars their contribution, and then employers match it dollar for dollar. The employers get tax deduction as a business expense. So half of the benefit, or the half the contribution and half the benefit, and there wasn't a match in taking it into income. So what was done in 1983 was to treat Social Security the same way we treat private pension income, but it is very unpopular. You're exactly right. People don't like it. And one thing in the 2100 Act is to increase the thresholds for when people have to pay. So he's the, the Democrats are giving a tax cut for Social Security benefits. Yeah, I mean, I understand where it all starts from with the 50% that was first taxed in 83, and then it went up to 85%. But I just worked on that slide and the the number of people, retirees whose social security income is taxed now is over 50% and it was 10% um, when it started. So that hasn't 
that's a part of the problem is it hasn't kept up with inflation and, and it's sneaky. It's very, it's hidden. People don't understand that until they, they start taking out all their other retirement assets at 72 or. No, and quite frankly, I mean, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, as, as much as there's talk about, and this is another misconception and some, so for somehow, Seniors are all living the life of, you know, Riley down in gated communities, you know, playing golf all day and all of that. Most seniors, Social Security has reduced poverty, but most seniors are just above the poverty line. So right. any kind of serious illness could push them into poverty and so forth. People who are wealthy enough to pay um, income tax are actually the wealthier of seniors, but that's still a low income group. And so part of the problem, I think, is that people are paying taxes who really are just barely getting by. And that's part of the reason I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's so controversial. It is. And I, because the average wage for couples this year, the average, not wage, the average Social Security income for married couples is now um, 33000 a year which is up into that 50% bracket. So, and the singles is creeping up. So even the average, and that doesn't include the lower uh, income. um, It really is affecting people that I don't, I don't really think it should be. Um, The, uh, as I say, chairman, John Larson who's chairs the social security subcommittee and his is the 2100 act. He's right there with you. He's, he wants to raise those thresholds, wants to raise it to 50,000 for, married couples. Yeah. I want to see it be um, adjusted like all the other figures are for social security. And what is this about the $15 minimum wage? What you've talked about, that's a win for social security and why, why stop there? Can you tell us about that? What other changes should happen uh, for lower and middle-class paychecks and how does that affect social security? You know, it's there's so many good policies that would um, benefit as a byproduct would benefit Social Security. I mean, it's really outrageous that minimum wage workers are not able to survive. The whole idea of a minimum wage is to have a decent standard of living. And there, as you know, there's been a real fight for 15, and that's been a few years ago. And yet yeah. Congress still not um, enacted uh an increase in the federal minimum wage. If Congress were to enact an increase in the federal minimum wage, of course it would be good up and down the income scale because minimum wage workers would get more, which means those earning above the minimum wage would get more, it would just bump the salaries um, up. So it's the right policy as current wages, but it also helps deferred wages because social security, it's another way that it's so responsibly managed that um, people pay on their first dollars of earnings. So if you're earning minimum wage, you're paying social security contributions on your first dollar. If you're earning more, you'll pay somewhat higher social security contributions and you'll get a larger social security benefit when you retire. So it's a win. If we could get away from you know, the equity gap of, between men and women and the, the gender gap in wages uh, at, by equalizing up, you don't want to bring men down, bring women up. Yeah. Um, that also would make a significant uh, improvement in Social Security financing. Similarly, if um, um, we increased immigration and we um, 
immigrants actually are a benefit for Social Security. They're a, they're a little bit akin to women having more children. It's younger people in the workforce. Immigrants by culture often have larger families. They tend to be younger. So they're all um, contributing to Social Security. I think it's moral, sound, um, humane policy, and it also helps all of us. It does. And it's so much of what you just said is counterintuitive to what most people think. Um, One of the courses I wrote was Social Security and Immigrants, and there are so many misconceptions. Yes. Really inaccurate information on that. In fact, people don't tend to talk about it, but you know, the, I mean, people say, oh, these undocumented workers, they're getting my Social Security. Exactly. No, they, they cannot get Social Security. And in fact, many of them are contributing because they're working on a, a false Social Security number. So they're paying in, but they're never going to get a penny in benefits. Or they um, have, um, they may even have ITIN, individual tax ID numbers. Exactly. And they are. They're, they're actually a better a benefit because they are paying in and they aren't often taking it out. And in fact, Social Security, as you say, no one talks about it, but undocumented workers improve Social Security's financing by billions of dollars every year. Now, I don't think that's right. I think if someone, whether documented or undocumented, is working and paying, they've earned the benefit the same way they've earned their salary. I don't think we should reach in their pockets and take their wages back. Um, And the same thing, I think they should get Social Security, but that is not the law. The law is they cannot get benefits. No, and that's a no, we won't go into immigration. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Talk to us about uh, the state-by-state reports that you put out at Social Security Works. What are those? Social Security Works, uh, I love the name of our organization because it says says what we believe, which is Social Security Works. And we um, are an educational uh, organization and we put out a variety of reports. Social Security Works for Women, Social Security Works Uh, for African Americans, Social Security Works for Children and so forth. But we also put out reports for every state. Social Security Works for California, Social Security Works for Texas. The Social Security Administration puts out Um, the number of lots of data uh, going down to both the congressional and county level. So we put out, um, we're doing it annually. Now we've gotten a little bit behind because of so much other work we have, but we'll be putting them out again in a report for all 50 states, for uh, the territories. We put a number of them out in Spanish um, and they are, and then we put one Social Security Works for the United States that has all of it. But it shows how much money is flowing into each congressional district. ARP has found that for every dollar of benefits that goes into a district, there, it creates $2 in economic growth. So it's creating jobs because, as we were just talking, people who get Social Security tend to be low, low income. They're not putting their money you know, in a Swiss bank account. They are spending it in their local communities on necessities. So it's, it's helping the economy, and it shows all kinds of statistics, the number of children who get Social Security. People don't realize it, but Social Security is the nation's largest children's program because of the survivor and disability family benefits that are provided. Yeah. So this, these are, you can go to our website, socialsecurityworks.org, and that we've got uh, under resources, 
We have state reports and you can look up your state and get, and we try to put in stories also about people who receive those benefits. So you, you've got both the personal and the data. We also, yeah. another report that I really like, and we're updating now, it's not out yet, but we did it a few years ago, Social Security serving those who serve our nation because Social Security is extremely important for veterans, for right. their families who've lost a loved one. There are the survivor benefits and so yeah. forth. Well, I'm going to put a link to that on our website under our resources because our analysts are in all different states. And I think that's just a wonderful sort of information, tidbit of information for your local area to have. Um, what do you think FDR would think about the way we care for and think about Social Security as a society today? You know, I'm so glad you asked <laughs> people often sometimes you'll read commentators saying oh he wouldn't recognize the program you know it's so changed oh. and i always laugh and say he would recognize it but his question would be you haven't done more he called it when he signed it into law in 1935 he called it a cornerstone in an institution that is being built in a structure that's being built but is by no means complete he saw that every generation would add to it he wanted what essentially is Medicare for all, guaranteed health insurance, and almost proposed it in 1935, but thought it was just too much at that point. He wanted disability, long-term disability insurance, which was added in 1956. He wanted short-term disability, which we could think of as paid family leave and other kinds of uh-huh. uh, sick pay and so forth. They were talking about that back in the 1930s. And these were all part of the vision of Social Security. As I said, we added in 1939, we got survivor's benefits and family benefits. Then we had World War II, so things came to a halt. But soon after the war, they started increasing benefits. They added in 1956 disability insurance. They added um, 1965, they added Medicare and Medicaid, which you know, Medicare is also part of the FICA, Federal Insurance Contributions. 72, they automatically indexed the program, but then progress stopped. And I think the, um, both the Democrats and Republicans thought, you know, we've, um, we're afraid, I don't know quite why they deviated, but they stopped seeing it as an institution that is growing, that they wanted to really see it um, increase. But the Democrats are back now they are, and I think the Republicans, I think if the 2100 Act comes for a vote, it doesn't have any Republican co-sponsors, but I'll be surprised if there aren't some Republican votes because it is what their constituents want. Yeah, yep, and they're going to listen to that. What would you like, I know you've mentioned uh, uh, several times about taxing the, the higher earners. I think that taxable earnings limit should disappear and uh, all ta- income should be taxed, but what else would you like, what would you like to see as an expansion of social security and what needs to happen for those changes? Well, the um, most experts say that people need about 70% of pre-retirement pay to maintain your standard of living in retirement, which is the goal to be able to stop work and not have to, you know, sell your home and move and with your children and so forth as they used to before social security, but just to be able to maintain your standard of living. Uh-huh. But Social Security for an average worker, um, 
earning you know about fifty thousand dollars only receives about thirty five percent of the retirement pay, which is not enough. It's progressive, so that lower income workers earn a higher percentage. Higher income workers earn a somewhat lower percentage, but none of the rates are enough to be able to retire and um, maintain your standard of living. So there's talk about across the board increases, but they're talking about two or three percent, five percent, which is is good. But I would ten percent, fifteen percent, double it. I mean, I would have really substantial given how many advantages Social Security has. It's, it's um, very efficiently administered. Less than a penny of every dollar is paid out in benefits. More than 99 cents is paid out in administration. More than 99%, 99 cents in the dollar is paid in benefits. It's portable from job to job. It's good for short-term workers as well as, as long-term uh, steady workers. So it's good for everyone. It's better than any product you can get uh, in the private sector. So I would dramatically expand it in both targeted ways and across the board. To pay for it, Social Security has three streams of revenue. Its primary source has been and always will be the FICA contributions, the premiums paid by employees matched by their employers. Then there from the beginning has been interest on the investments because the money that's held in trust is invested and there's uh, investment income. Then the third, which came in in 1983, is what we were talking about before. It's the taxation of benefits. But the wrinkle is that instead of the money going into the general fund, it's paid back to Social Security. That is the only progressive source. The FICA, because of that wage base, it's proportionate up to 147000 in 2022, which is the maximum in 2022. And then it's regressive. You pay zero after that, 6.2% before. The investment income is something that's shared. We all have paid into the into the fund and, and the investment income is, is for all of us. The taxation of benefits, it's, so the benefits are taxed, um, are considered income for federal income tax purposes, is the only progressive source. And that amounts to about 3% of Social Security's income. We have been witnessing over the last 20 years a dramatic increase in um, income and wealth inequality that's very destabilizing and as a, a byproduct has really taken money away from Social Security because more and more people at the top are earning more than that maximum um, while everyone else's wages has stagnated. So given all of that, I think we should be thinking about a progressive source of revenue, whether it's a wealth tax, whether it's a surtax, an income tax, whether it's a financial transactions tax, there are a number of taxes which are good policy and but are very hard to enact, but I think would be easier to enact if the money were contributed, were paid to Social Security. I think that's the only way we might be able to get that. And we're still only talking about four or five percent of right. Social Security's income, but it's enough to really expand the program. Right. Do you have any opinions on um those investments changing the way that the funds that are in the trust funds are invested, because I've heard about that too. Yes. So the ways that you can increase the income, you can increase the premium, either the rate or that base that we were talking about. You can increase the investment income, or you can find another source of progressive revenue. So I was just talking about from the beginning, Congress has said, 
that Social Security's uh, surplus has to be invested in the safest investment on earth, which are treasury bonds backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. The idea is that these are the people's pension, it's workers' money, and they want to be very safe with it. But every, every one of your financial advisors will advise their clients that you should diversify your portfolio, that it's good to have a mix of bonds and stocks. And from the beginning, there have been talk about investing some of those assets in, now you don't want to invest them in individual stocks because that's a little bit, makes people a little bit nervous about government ownership and so forth. Yeah. But you can invest in broad-based index funds where there's no voting, you know, where it's, it's very insulated. It's kind of like the Federal Reserve. It's got a board that's very, and that would increase the investment income. Interestingly, Chairman Larson, in his first iteration back in 2013, did propose that. But what he found was it was that people confused that with privatization. It's quite different because when you invest in individual accounts, you are subject to the the rise and fall yourself. If it's invested in for all of us, then your benefit is still guaranteed. You're going to get that benefit no matter what happens. Right. The government never has to um, to dismiss because it's got unlimited time horizon. The problem is that I think it's great policy, but I think the politics are hard. It would take a lot of explaining. So I think if I were um, in charge, I would say, yeah, let's do it. But if I had to run for office, I might say, well, maybe not. It's a little yeah. hard to explain. Perception is a big part of it. Exactly. And yeah. again, the idea is to have people feel secure. And you don't want them to think, oh, the stock market's falling. That's going to hurt my Social Security. Well, there's so many other things that can be tweaked that can increase the longevity of the program, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. As I say, it's a matter of values. It's not a matter of affordability. And I I don't think it would be hard to reach consensus about it. Well, that's so encouraging to hear you say that. Um, So the current inflation is definitely affecting those who are collecting Social Security since COLA really doesn't keep up with that. But does inflation have an impact on Social Security itself, whether positive or negative? I mean, you talked about that back in the 80s when there was stagflation. So how does that affect it? Well, one of the real strengths of Social Security makes it better than private sector vehicles is that no matter what the inflation rate is, there is an adjustment that is made every January based on what the inflation was. It's Uh technically the third quarter over the third quarter, but it's basically what's happened with Um, inflation. Now, we've argued that the measure is not accurate for seniors and people with disabilities because it undermeasures healthcare costs for that group. And that's the healthcare costs will be going up very, very fast. Um, And so we've been talking, and in fact, the, again, the Larson Bill, the Democrats have rallied behind a more accurate cost of living adjustment. But to have any kind of automatic adjustment is unusual and an extremely valuable, and certainly at a time now when we're experiencing such high inflation. But at the same time, when there's high inflation, there tends to be higher wages. So that means that more people are, that means that um, people are contributing more, they're earning more, and they're contributing more. So generally, wages tend to go up faster than um, prices. 
not every year, but over time. So it shouldn't be a problem for Social Security. It's really um, a benefit of the program. Yeah. Oh, it's just so wonderful to talk to you. Um, where can people go to learn more about you or get in touch? Um, you want to give the Social Security Works information again or anything yes. else? Our website is socialsecurityworks.org. We have lots of resources. If you want to sign up, we send out um, maybe more emails than you're going to want, but send out emails pretty much daily, um, letting me know what's going on. And just an interesting point that we define Social Security the way FDR defined it, and that was basic economic security. So we are looking at lowering drug prices, which indirectly raises your social security. If you're paying less out, your benefits go further. We are talking about expanding Medicare. So we're involved with lots and lots of um, issues beyond as, you know, our core is social security, the old age survivors disability um, program. But we look at these also. And if you sign up, we will give you up to the minute what is going on in the halls of Congress uh, on these important issues. Great. Is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked you? The only thing, since you do have both financial advisors and um, people who are thinking about their own retirement, I think it's important that, you know, I sometimes get uh, questions like, oh, I hear it's going bankrupt. Should I grab my benefits as soon as I turn 62? And really, if you're, you've got to look at your own individual situation if you can wait until age 70, your benefits will be higher. You get permanent monthly increased benefits for the rest of your life. And you really want to be looking ahead to when you're 90 and when you might, um, your spouse might uh, live beyond you and so forth and what the, the, you and, the, and, and your spouse will be getting. The program will be there. Don't worry that somehow you've got to grab those benefits because they won't be there. I hope uh, what I'd like to leave people with is the security that social security is supposed to provide that don't believe the scared headlines. Um, just make sure you vote for members who don't just say they love social security because everyone will say that ask them, will you expand it or will you cut it and vote accordingly? Thank you so much, Nancy. I, I could ask you more questions, but we will have to stop here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you.